you got the horrible news. Uh, who, who told you that your mother had been killed and, and, and when? Yeah, so Ribol is not enough, uh, I think. Uh, I understand. My, my, my last uh, evening of childhood, we, uh, I was in my uh, grandparents' house in the countryside of Paris, and, and uh, my father, uh, which uh, was supposed to come on the day after, came into the night, uh, woke up me and, and hold me in his arms. Very hard, too hard. He was crying and he told me that, uh, we will never be the same like before. And, uh, so my life, uh, turned upside down and 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 yes my my uh, my mother was found uh, dead hey lovely listeners and welcome back to crime analyst and the intelligence cell this episode i'm flying solo I'm going to consolidate and share with you my reflections about the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier. There's a lot more to this case than you probably first realised. That was Pierre Louis that you heard speaking about his mother Sophie. He was a child at the time that she was brutally killed, just a boy. A boy who was close to his mum, who didn't understand where she had gone, who needed his mum. He's also another victim. The killer took his mother away from him, depriving him of that special bond, and in the blink of an eye his whole world shattered, and he would never be the same again. Too often the true crime genre, and law enforcement and professionals, can become desensitised in the process, and forget that we're talking about someone's loved one. And I'm purposefully not going to say someone's daughter, sister or mother I'm just going to say the victim was someone in their own right. They mattered, and are worthy of our respect and honour. And we must treat them honourably in death, and they deserve the truth, and that's what I seek to find in my work. I always reflect on cases. Oftentimes I need time and space to process information that I obtain from multiple sources at any one time. It takes time to process it's often a lot of information, information and intelligence that's conflicting at times. And this is how I tend to work all cases. I am a reflector, and that's when I do my best work. Or in the moment of a conversation, as you heard when Jim and I discussed this case in previous episodes. And a thought can come to me at the strangest of times, and suddenly something makes sense that didn't before. So yes, throughout my pregnancy, I continued with the research, analysis and re-examination of Sophie's case. When I was out walking with Beatrice, my golden doodle, I was listening to Michael Sheridan's audible book, constantly hitting pause to take a note or reflect on what I heard. And even when I was at the hospital, I had all the material with me and was reading articles and books and writing notes and assimilating all the information 
the nurses were very curious about what I was doing. And I've done exactly the same thing post the birth of my son. I think about this case a lot. And I guess giving birth to my son has made it even more poignant. Pierre-Louis' need for answers is understandable. He deserves that. And like he said, he's prepared to wait the passage of time for the truth to reveal itself. And I want to help him if I can, in some small way by shedding light in the darkness of what happened. And with any case, I go deep, and I totally immerse myself in it. And like I said, it does take time. I analyse and review and start off with as much of the primary source material as I can. Then I visit the crime scene, if that's possible, and or look at the geography, as that reveals a lot too. And once I have my initial thoughts and questions together in one place, I may jump on a case consult with someone else, a respected colleague or another expert with a differing area of expertise if needed, and they're my soundboard. In the moment, you can discover something that you didn't before. It really enhances the process in my experience. And so with Sophie's case, I spoke with Alison Sweeney first off. Now you'll recall Ali brought the case to my attention in the first place due to the coverage of it, and she wanted to know my opinion. I knew she'd ask good questions, and that's always a good place to be, and I thought that you might want to be part of that conversation. Now, since our discussion, I've continued to dig deeper into the case material, the podcasts, the documentaries, the articles, books that have been written, newspaper articles, and so forth. And having finished Michael Sheridan's book on Audible, there are some important details from it that I want to share with you. Michael appears in the Netflix show, and he piqued my interest immediately as he talked about coercive control. And in the last episodes, I spoke with Jim C., The discussion was real. You heard how he and I work a case, and so at times we're almost thinking out loud, ruminating, playing things out, questioning, challenging, probing, hypothesizing, as when you say things out loud, it feels different. And we often add to what the other one's saying and give a different perspective. It's how we work together, and we've worked like this for many years. Now, we don't always agree. We have different areas of expertise, and that's the point. We arrive at better outcomes and hypotheses and theories to be tested working together than if we were working in isolation. Now, in my opinion, this is the best way for behavioral analysts to work. And like I said, from the outset of Crime Analyst, it's my intention to share with you how I and my colleagues arrive at specific opinions and thoughts. And it is very much a process. And that process, like I said, takes time, and the devil is in the detail. At each stage, you continuously review your work and your thoughts and your process and your hypotheses that might become a theory. And as new information and details become known, you keep reviewing it. It's dynamic. And so with each of my episodes, they may not always be word perfect, And there may be some facts and details that I might get wrong in the moment and that I have to then revisit or restate or review. And that happens too. And that's okay. That's what happens in the real world. And like I said, behavioral analysis is really a process that's organic. And as new facts emerge or are known, you continuously and dynamically review your analysis. Like I said at the outset of Crime Analyst, I'm going to stay true to this process. 
so I will restate and revisit things as necessary. This is not a heavily produced show, nor am I reading off a script that someone else has dramatically crafted for me. These are my raw thoughts and reflections documented as they happen and as they unfold, as well as my conversations with my guests, some of them experts, others survivors or family members, and crime analyst is as real as it comes. And that's what makes what I'm doing very different and unique from all the other podcasts that are out there, along with my intention to keep the victims centre stage in their own narrative. And that's what I do in all my work. They are who and what is important, and we mustn't lose sight of that. But I also want to thank you, my listener, for being on this journey with me, and for all your wonderful five-star reviews and messages that I've received. Now, I haven't had time to reply to all messages, particularly since I had my son, my baby, still a newborn, so things have been incredibly busy. So please keep them coming. And on that note of keeping victims central in their own narrative and honouring them, I want to share with you something that I uncovered in Sophie's case. And it's something that's important that I think you should know before I get into my final reflections about what happened to Sophie. I was deeply upset and unhappy to learn that Sophie's body lay on the ground, out in the open, and exposed to the elements, covered only by tarpaulin for 24 hours, before the state pathologist, Professor John Harbison, travelled to West Cork and conducted the post-mortem, or autopsy as it's known as in America. Let me first start by reiterating that this is completely unacceptable and egregious for many reasons. Now, first and foremost... Imagine if it were your loved one. How would you feel about that? Secondly, the time of death could not be scientifically established. And thirdly, key evidence was lost due to the elements. Now, the state pathologist was Professor John Harbison, as I said at the time. And when Sophie was found on December the 23rd, it was Professor Harbison's birthday. Now, he received the call, but he said he wouldn't travel to West Cork but he would be there the following day. Now, the fact it was his birthday, that may well have had something to do with it. Well, that's what was inferred across a lot of the coverage of the case. And that, on its own, sounds outrageous, doesn't it? Well, you know I always talk about context and how important context is. Well, here's a little bit more context and background that I discovered as I began asking questions about what really went on. You see, Professor Harbison was the state's only pathologist at the time. Put another way, he covered the whole of the Republic of Ireland, and he had to travel all over the country, often at very short notice, and at all times of the day or night, to scenes of murder and suspicious deaths. And in 1996, he told the Department of Justice that he was battle-weary, trying to deal with the massive caseload all on his own. Well, it wasn't just the case of telling the Department of Justice. It was a little bit more formal than that. You see, earlier that year, Professor Harbison had complained in a report to the then Minister for Justice, Nora Owen. And he said, and I quote, My department is understaffed and overwhelmed with work. I'm battle weary. And he said that the refusal of the government to continue with the services of his assistant, Dr. Margaret Bolster, who covered the south of the country in Professor Harbison's absence, was, in inverted commas, highly undesirable. You see, for 21 of the 22 years, he worked at the Director of Public Prosecutions, and he was funded by them until December the 31st, 1996. 
And then there was a big shift following Sophie's case. And as Professor Harbison had been requesting for many years, from January the 1st, 1997, he came under the Minister for Justice and he then had a team of pathologists working to him to cover all the state's cases. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because he was just one person doing the job of many. Additionally, his pleas for help for there to be a cadre of qualified on-call pathologists wasn't heard and were largely ignored until after Sophie's case. And let's be practical. It's just not possible for one person to be in two places at once. And yes, it was his birthday when he received the call. But how can it be right that there was only one person in this role to cover all the state's cases across Ireland? And I'm not sure it was just a coincidence that everything changed literally within days following Sophie's case. Now, I'm telling you this as it's something to keep in mind when considering the DPP's, the Director of Public Prosecution's, curious decision not to charge Ian Bailey in this case, which Jim and I touched upon in our previous discussions. Now, perhaps this was a contributing factor in the DPP's decision-making. I can't tell you one way or t'other, but I have to raise it as a question. Perhaps he wanted the case to go away for this reason rather than anything else. I mean, to my mind, there seemed to be a considerable amount of circumstantial evidence in this case, and I'm going to go through it momentarily. So perhaps the DPP didn't want to be exposed or for his office to be found wanting. I mean, that's very interesting timing, just after Sophie's brutal murder, that there was significant change. And the timing of the move was super quick, unusually so for a government department. And I also want to tell you one more thing that I learned about Professor John Harbison. You see, he's passed away now, and he's not here to defend himself. And it might be easy to cast dispersion on him and blame him for the delay, but I discovered something about his character which really chimed with me. You see, he had worked some of the biggest cases in Ireland, yet he rarely, if ever, spoke to the media. His daughter Isabel said this, and I quote, My father had an incredibly strong sense of medical ethics. For him, this meant not speaking to the press about individual cases. He understood the pain associated with speaking of names of victims and did not want to participate in perpetuating that. Fundamentally, he was impartial, a scientific man who wanted to do his best to provide the evidence that the courts needed to decide justice. Now, that's a very powerful and interesting discovery, which really resonates with me on a number of levels. You see, it seems to me that Professor John Harbison felt a sense of duty and honour in what he did, and that he tried to protect the victims and their families. Now, the other aspect to this discovery is that I think it's highly unlikely that Professor Harbison shared his findings from the examination of Sophie with anyone in the media, including Ian Bailey. Yet, Ian Bailey reported in an article in the media on December the 26th that Sophie died from a head injury and that there was no sexual assault. Well, how did he know she'd been hit from behind? And how did he know there was no sexual assault? Only the pathologist knew this for sure. Very few people saw her body, and those who did could not tell because she was lying on her back. And the full report wouldn't be available for three months. 
Yet how did Ian Bailey know this on December the 25th, which is when the article would have gone to press? And it's also important to mention that it appeared no one from the Garda were talking to him. And therefore, if Ian Bailey wasn't getting his information from the Garda, nor from the pathologist, how did he know the things that he published on December the 26th? Now, that's something that Jim and I discussed in a previous episode. It also underlines that this isn't just entertainment. This is people's lives. And loved ones of murder victims listen to podcasts. And some members of families of loved ones who've been brutally murdered even host their own podcasts. And they also read the papers, listen to the news, etc. So I think we all would do well to remember that even speaking the victim's name is painful for the family and friends and for so many who knew the victim. And so where I land with this is that Professor John Harbison, the state's first forensic pathologist, was not entirely to blame for the delay with the post-mortem. He was clearly overwhelmed and overworked, and he made formal representation to those who had the power to expand his office and support his work way before Sophie's case happened. You see, it seems that it was the DPP's office who failed by not listening to Professor Harbison's request for more resources and not valuing the work that he did. He didn't have a cadre of qualified on-call pathologists, nor did he have a driver to take him the length and breadth of the country, sometimes in the middle of the night and at short notice, to do the gruelling work that he did. And so for clarity, I'm in no way excusing what happened, because I won't defend the indefensible. It's disgraceful, and it makes me so sad and angry to think of Sophie's body laying out in the open all night, and that vital evidence was likely lost and compromised. That should never, ever happen. But in this case, we need to look at the wider context of how this was allowed to happen and by whom. In other words, who was the person who could have changed this? Who was the person who could have laid charges in the case? And the answer to those two questions comes back to the same person, the DPP. A formal investigation began in Paris in 2001 after James Hamilton, then DPP, indicated to French authorities that there wasn't sufficient evidence to pursue a prosecution against Ian Bailey in Ireland. As part of the French inquiry, the Garda file on the case was handed over to investigators in Paris. One of them told the court about interviewing witnesses when detectives came to Ireland in 2008 and 2011. He said several locals described the accused as a man who behaved strangely, drank to the point of having blackouts and was very violent. He said several people said they were very afraid of him. Now I want to go back to the crime scene assessment and what happened that night. A few things have solidified and become clearer to me over time. And so firstly, although we don't have a time of death... It's clear that Sophie was killed between 11pm on the Saturday night and 10am on the Sunday, the next day. And I can't say anything more specifically, although I suspect it was in the early hours of Sunday morning between 12 and 3, given the sighting of a man at Kilfeder Bridge and the sound of someone screaming. Now it was also established that the only thing missing from the house, according to Josephine Helen, was the small axe with a red handle that was used to chop firewood or kindling. Josephine Helen believed it was in or near a box in the porch when she left the house before Sophie arrived. 
The back door was at the end of the porch and the axe had been in the porch. There was also money in the house too, a stack of £20 notes, credit cards, a passport and various other items of value. And importantly, none of these items were taken. Therefore, this wasn't a robbery. And there were no footprints inside the house. Albeit, my interest was piqued that Sophie was wearing her boots. Therefore, it would seem likely that everything took place outside the house. Her boot prints and the killers were not in the house. And a few more points about that. I believe that Sophie knew the person who knocked on the door. To me, she must have felt okay to open the door and she put her boots on to have a conversation, which leads me to believe that she went outside to talk. Now, why would she do this? Well, it's likely that Sophie didn't feel safe enough to invite the person in. And I do believe it was a him. So instead, she spoke to him semi-outside. Now, I believe it was a him for a number of reasons. First and foremost, most violence against women and girls is committed by men. It's a problem of male violence towards women, as well as from my analysis of the crime scene and my assessment of the motive. And I'll get to that momentarily. But what I will also say here is that the breeze block, the concrete block that was picked up and dropped on Sophie's head, was estimated to weigh around 25 kilos, which is around 55 pounds. It was heavy, and therefore it would have taken someone with strength, most likely a man, to pick it up and drop it on her head. And of course, I've mentioned it before, Sophie fought back. She fought tooth and nail, and I've already highlighted the defensive wounds. Now this also fits with what Daniel, her husband, said about Sophie, that she wasn't afraid of anything, that she spoke her mind, and she'd have no qualms about walking around late at night. But sadly, on this occasion, Sophie was no match for her assailant. In other words, the physicality and fight between the two, it just wasn't equal. Now it's possible that she grabbed the small axe because she felt uncomfortable or unsafe due to what was unfolding or she grabbed it when there was a knock at the door. But I believe she used it in self-defence when the conversation turned threatening, and I believe the little axe was grabbed from her by the killer, a man who was more powerful than her. And remember, she was only about five foot. She was petite, and I believe that he hit her with it, which is why her blood was on the door. Now, there wasn't a lot of Sophie's blood on the door. It was almost like her hand or knuckle had grazed against the door. And it's been bothering me as to how her blood got there. And also, why she didn't go to Alfie Lyons and Shirley Foster's house. So why do I think that was? Well, it's more than likely that she runs to the back door and tries to open it and get back in the house. But perhaps the door had locked and so she couldn't. It's not clear whether the door was open or locked when the police arrived. Again, this would need to be clarified. But I would imagine as things unfolded, and being unable to get back in, she runs away from the house and down to the gate, and he chases after her. So why would she run away from her neighbour's house and run in the opposite direction? That initially didn't make sense to me. However, the most feasible explanation is that she was in blind panic, and the killer was blocking her way and preventing her from going up there. Remember Occam's razor? 
the simplest explanation is normally the right one. And I should also mention that there was another house in that little enclave, the Richardson's house. They were in London at the time, and so the house was empty. Three weapons were used. Three weapons that were all at the house and in the grounds, i.e. the killer didn't bring the weapons with him, and it's highly unlikely that this was premeditated. Put another way, it unfolded in the moment, and there was overkill. Sophie had more than 50 injuries. She had so many lacerations, it was hard to recognise her. Now this suggests poor impulse control. Something happened, and this was a reactionary response. Now this person, the killer, would have a history of reactionary behaviour in their day-to-day life, a history of violence and poor impulse control. This was a power and control crime. It was personal. There was much more violence than necessary used to overpower and kill Sophie. It's expressive of the killer and not functional. This was about revenge and punishment. Three separate weapons were used, all targeting her face and head. Just to reiterate, she had so much damage to her face, it was hard to recognise her. That also tells me it was personal. The killer was obliterating her face. He was wiping her out, violently rubbing her out. This reveals his anger due to her not doing what he wanted, most likely to a reaction to rejection. I believe Sophie rejected him that night, and this was a fantasy-based approach and murder. The killer thought he would win Sophie over that night, but instead, Sophie did the opposite and rejected him, and how dare she, he would have thought and he decided to teach her a lesson. The killer didn't just accidentally end up at Sophie's house by sheer happenstance. He took himself there, most likely in the haze of alcohol, and he made some very bad decisions when Sophie refused to give him what he wanted. All hell broke loose. In the aftermath, it's likely that he took the small axe and disposed of it. Now a man was seen washing his boots at the bridge That was the community intelligence at the time, and it's likely that the small axe was tossed into the body of water. Jim and I discussed that too. And so my question, and it's not something that I can answer, but it's whether that small body of water nearby at Kelfada Bridge, was it ever searched? That's a key action that should be progressed all these years later if it wasn't. And so given what happened in the murder the brutal attack where the intention was to viciously obliterate Sophie, in the killer's post-offence behaviour, I would expect to hear the person who killed Sophie diminish her, devalue her, and try and discredit her and create distance between them thereafter. And so I've been listening very carefully to how people described Sophie and how she was talked about after her death. And there's a couple of points to consider here. Firstly, Ian Bailey said and wrote that Sophie was promiscuous and sexually active with others, despite there being no evidence that this was the case. And I talked about that in previous episodes. And I highlighted in part five that Ian Bailey chose to frame Sophie in the media as being promiscuous. 
and he read into the fact that there were two wine glasses on the draining board by her sink. He chose to sully her name and character, and he devalued her. In other words, he attacked her, and it came on my radar straight away. As I said, I was already paying close attention to someone who might do that. And just as her assailant viciously and brutally attacked her at the time of her murder, here's clear evidence of Ian Bailey attacking her after her death. So I have to ask the question, why would Ian Bailey do that in the articles that he wrote? Furthermore, in his writings and when he spoke about Sophie, there was an absence of empathy or compassion. Again, why? As I've said before, it's not always what's present. I'm also interested in what's missing and absent. Ian Bailey also told Alfie Lyons that Sophie was attractive. However, he later described her as being plain. Now that's in stark contrast to what he said previously, and also to how other people described Sophie, that she was a natural beauty and that she was beautiful. I also noticed that Ian Bailey didn't use Sophie's name in a number of interviews. He called her the victim. That sounded jarring to me and dehumanising and creates distance. However, what stood out to me the most was when Ian Bailey was asked if he knew Sophie five days after she was murdered. And this is what he said. Did you know Sophie Tuscan de Plantier? I didn't know her in as much that I had never met her, but I had seen her once and she was pointed out to me. But you're saying to me here, you didn't kill Sophie de Plantier, nor did you have any part in that. I am saying to you that I didn't kill her, I had no knowledge of the killing, and I'm an innocent man. His choice of language really stands out to me here and raises some serious questions. It's so deliberate and intentioned in response to a simple question. Why was that? What purpose does it serve? You'll just say, no, I didn't know her, or I saw her once. But that's not what he said. And having claimed knowledge about the case and situated himself as the go-to person about the case, talking to other journalists and volunteering to take them to the crime scene, writing details that no one else knew about what happened, here he is claiming that he had no knowledge of the killing. And also I just want to throw in, and many of you have remarked on it, that Skull is such a small place. Now I get the impression that everyone knew everyone, It's a small village, and everyone tends to know each other's business. You see people in the same pub, the shop, as you go about your daily business. So much so that when a stranger or visitor's there, they would stand out. Now this was said repeatedly about Skull, and so I find it hard to believe that he didn't know her. And so his choice of language stood out as a red flag. And when I started to dig deeper, I discovered that at least five people contradicted what he said. They included Paul Webster, a Guardian reporter in Paris, Helen Callanan from the Sunday Tribune, who was based in Dublin, Guy Girard, a French filmmaker, Alfie Lyons, and Agnes Thomas, who was Sophie's best friend at the time. Paul Webster said that Ian Bailey told him that he knew Sophie as an acquaintance and that he saw her the day before the murder. Helen Callanan reported that Ian Bailey told her that he'd spoken to Sophie before she was murdered and therefore he knew her. In March 1999, Guy Girard told Gardai how Sophie had told him in early December 1996 about his friend she had in Ireland called Ian Bailey, who was exploring themes of violence in his writing. 
Alfie Lyons's recollection was that he did introduce Sophie and Ian Bailey. In fact, he said he was 90% confident that he had introduced Bailey to Sophie when gardening in June 1995, and that Sophie went to Alfie's house. This meeting was apparently witnessed by Leo Bolger, who was doing some repair work on Sophie's house at the time, according to Michael Sheridan. And Agnes, Sophie's best friend, said that the night before Sophie's trip to Ireland, that Sophie had told her on the phone about a weird guy who wrote poetry and who wanted to meet her. She said that she didn't want to meet him and that she was wary of him. So what are the chances that all five of them are misremembering? It's unlikely, I'd say. And so these are important facts, along with the fact that Skull is a small place, and that Ian Bailey's language choice to create distance, well, that stood out to me right away, along with his devaluing of her. And then there's the fact that she was someone who could make things happen. So put another way, she had means and influence to create TV shows and media, and she loved poetry and literature. And Bailey fancied himself as a poet and believed he was more than what he really was. All these things lead me more towards the possibility that Bailey did know who she was and that they had met before. Further, he says that he had no knowledge of the killing, yet he described things that no one else but the pathologist knew about the case. And so building on this and tracking back to when Bailey first appeared at the crime scene the very next day, in fact, he was the first journalist to arrive at around 2.20pm and Garden Martin Malone was standing at the checkpoint 150 yards from the crime scene when Bailey approached and said that he was writing a story for the examiner. Now, Bailey was told that he could go no further as the area was sealed off and interestingly, Garden Malone reported back that Bailey didn't ask who had been murdered and he didn't ask any questions about what had happened and in fact, he left very quickly. So how did Bailey know details that no one else knew? And suffice to say, a journalist attending a crime scene who asks no questions about the victim or indeed about what happened and they're intending to write a story about the case, well, that's just unheard of in my opinion. It's an oxymoron. And of course, it stands out. And it stood out to guard him alone. And that's not all. He also said that Bailey appeared to have dressed up to come to the scene. The guarder said that he had dressed smartly, but on other occasions he had seen him dress far more casually. And there were a couple of other things that Garden Malone noted. Firstly, that Bailey appeared to be acting and performing, and that he wasn't behaving normally. And in addition to that, the last time he interacted with Bailey was when Bailey had assaulted his long-term partner Jules Thomas, on May 6th, 1996. Let me tell you a little bit more about that. You'll remember Jules had presented at Skull Garda Police Station. She was in a bad way. Now this was the assault that left Jules with two bald patches where Bailey had yanked her hair out and her left eye was swollen closed and black and blue in colour. Her cheek was swollen and bruised and her lip needed stitches. And it was no mystery who did this to Jules. She told the guarder it was Ian Bailey, although she didn't want him prosecuted. In other words, Bailey had savagely beaten Jules around the head and the face. Now this is significant to me. Out of all the places he could have targeted, he targeted her head and face. 
just like Sophie was beaten around her head and face. And remember, her face was almost unrecognisable. It's impossible not to draw a parallel here, and it is relevant in my opinion. And do I really need to state that a man, and one of a large stature of over six feet, six foot four, who beats a woman half his size around the head and face, leaving her with bald patches, bruises and in need of stitches, that man is a clear risk and present danger to women, and yes, all women. And if anyone's thinking, well, it's just his partner who he did that to, let me make this very plain. If a man chooses to do this to the woman he's supposed to love, cherish, adore and care for, what else is he capable of doing to a woman he doesn't care about? A woman who may act in such a way that upsets him or displeases him or doesn't give him what he wants. And Jules did say Bailey had a childlike temper and needed more self-control. Now that's an understatement in my view. But red flags are not red flags if it feels like home. And I'm going to say more about that in the next episode. You see, it's hugely significant, yet a domestic abuse history is overlooked time and time again in violent and abusive men. And these cases are rarely prosecuted, which only greenlights men to abuse the same woman again and again, or if not her, another woman in the future. This is exactly why most domestic abusers are serial. It's a pattern of behaviour that they're used to. And it sends the wrong message every time when they're not prosecuted. And that message is that it's okay to beat and harm your partner, even though we hear the rhetoric time and time again that violence against women is not acceptable. Well, the problem is that it is accepted. And until we change that, the words are just words and women and children continue to be left at risk when abusive men are not held to account and their behaviour is most oftentimes positively reinforced by society, the systems and others in it. More on this in the final episode. And of course, that's not all. There was the fire at Ian Bailey's house, which was seen by two independent witnesses on or around December 26th, St Stephen's Day. Now, when asked about the fire, Bailey said that he didn't start the fire. Well, that wasn't the question. Again, the language choice is interesting. He doesn't deny there was a fire and that he had nothing to do with it, just that he didn't start it. Well, that may be true, but that's not the point. And it got me thinking about why would you choose to burn things at your house at this time of year, in December when it was cold and wet? What could possibly be so urgent? Now, there was a dump site that was close by because that's where Shirley Foster was going the morning that she found Sophie's body. So why not go there? And then there was the fabric and the shoelaces that were found in the remaining debris of the fire once it had been analysed and it was entered into evidence. So that's two people who remember a fire around December the 26th. And again, what are the chances that two people misremember a fire? I mean, it's possible to get the date wrong, yes, but I would think it would stand out, particularly at that time of year. And then there's the bleach that Bailey bought from the local shop. It stood out as an odd purchase. And then there were the clothes that were being soaked in a bucket, according to Anna Barini in Ian Bailey's bathroom. Now, she couldn't specify what clothes they were, but she said dark clothing. But again, it raises questions, and it obviously stood out to her. 
Like who in their right mind would choose to wash clothes like this in December? And then there were the scratches on his hands and arms, the police searches of his house and the lack of alibi, as well as the domestic violence history. And then there's Marie Farrell and the 20 witnesses who say that Ian Bailey confessed to them and also did strange things. So these are just some of the things I'm going to revisit in the final episode. So I have much more to say next week, breaking down the totality of the facts and the evidence. And so I hope you'll join me back in the intelligence cell next week. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Harfoga Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrood. 